TED Audio Collective. This is ZigZag, a podcast about changing the course of capitalism, journalism, and women's lives. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and I've got a question for you. When you get an idea, a big one, how does it go from just being a tiny little kernel of insight in the back of your brain to a total game changer? A game changer for you, maybe even the entire world. Since we launched this show six months ago, you, dear listeners, have shared a lot of your big ideas with us. Like this one. I want to expose the last bastion of white male good old boys impacting the globe. And I'm dead serious. The maritime industry needs a shakeup. That's Angie. Whoa, she's got a big idea. But is it doable? Maybe next, you or Angie or whoever decide to bounce your idea off a colleague. See what they think. And I'm thinking, you know, this sounds cool. Nice. Your pal Henry likes it. And really, the more you consider it, the better your idea seems to be. You know, it just came at the right moment. It really operates from a different paradigm. So you tell yourself, You got this. You got this. Your big idea is going to change everything. But just as you get to peak excitement about it, you start to hit roadblocks with your big idea. Like, whatever we want to call it. No one really knows what it is. And actually, this idea might be harder than you thought to execute. It's kind of complicated. Well, you couldn't get your head around how that would work. You need more money or maybe just time. But you've got neither. Which makes it especially difficult. Shoot. Maybe your good idea isn't good enough. I was teetering on a razor's edge. Ah, what should you do? Should you give up your big idea? The fight might be longer and harder than you anticipated. I do not have the mental headspace or the decision-making capability. I don't have it within me right now. So you hit the trough of disillusionment. That place where you have to make some very hard decisions. I knew that it was the right thing to do, but I didn't want to do it. We are going to shutter the small business that we started and put it on hiatus. I started a small farm business, and I'm sorry to say that it did not work out for me financially. I struggled with feeling like a failure when I decided to call it quits last year. Your honesty about the struggles in starting a business really made me feel a lot less alone. Yeah, it happens a lot. You try to test out an idea, and it doesn't work. That's one way things can go. One out of five small businesses in the U.S. fail in their first year. By the end of their fifth year, half of all small businesses fail. I couldn't bring myself to look up the most recent divorce rates or any other fun statistics. The point is, sometimes your big idea its just not meant to be. Not now, anyway. But that's not to say it wasn't worth pursuing or that it won't work down the road. Because sometimes, if the timing is right, an idea does work. And not just because it's good. Like you find a business partner who's a whiz at spreadsheets. Or suddenly, amazing Wi-Fi everywhere means your idea for an app is viable. Or you find an amazing babysitter that your kids love. And you feel okay working longer hours. 
suddenly the world, or even just your world, is ready for your big idea. Things, maybe slowly, come together. And you go back to telling yourself, You got this. You got this. But how do you know? What are the signs that an idea, innovation, or big change is worth executing? That it's worth putting in the time and money or, at a certain point, just cutting your losses and moving on? On this third season of ZigZag, we're searching for real, tangible evidence, ways to discover if an idea is worth investing in or if it's just hype. Blockchain, anyone? It's episode one, season three, and I'm going to explain what's going to happen right after the break. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Okay, it's Zigzag, and if it's your first time listening, we are so excited you're here. Just to catch you up, season one was about risk. Me and my co-founder, Jen, decided to quit our stable public radio jobs to start our own company and be part of a weird experiment using blockchain technology. It is 12 episodes, documentary style, in chapters, perfect for binge listening. It is raw, it is intimate, and uh, way too personal for me to listen back to without cringing just a little bit. Season two of ZigZag? nerdy, deep-dive, investigative series into trust and information, how tech companies, entrepreneurs, and journalists influence us, and how we can make sure we get good information. ZigZag Season 2 set my brain on fire in a good way. And here's the plan for Season 3. Six episodes coming at you every other Thursday, bi-weekly. And this season, as I mentioned, is all about understanding the life cycle of an idea. Because we have heard so many stories from you, dear listeners, about business concepts and partnerships and other changes going on in your lives and your communities. And I think we're all struggling professionally and personally with so many unknowns. So we're going to dive into it, figure out how you know when to keep going or how you know when to pull back. And I want to kick things off with the big picture, the woods rather than the trees. There's actually a name for the process that an idea typically goes through. It's called the hype cycle. And it was developed by this woman. I'm Jackie Fenn. I'm an industry analyst at Gartner. And one of the things that I created 25 years ago now was a model called the hype cycle, which talks about how technologies go from initial enthusiasm through a period of disillusionment and then on to eventual productivity. And that's a model that's taken off and is now used in many different areas of of technology and management trends. If you've never seen a drawing of the hype cycle before, we'll put a picture of it on our website, zigzagpod.com. But basically, it's not a circle or a cycle at all. It looks 
like a roller coaster with five points graphed on it, mapping out the five phases that most big ideas go through. The trigger of innovation, the peak of expectation, the trough of disillusionment, the slope of enlightenment, and finally, the plateau of productivity. One of the first technologies that Jackie mapped on the hype cycle was the web. And she found that people liked how poetic and replicable her model was. So it really started off as just a a one-off observation that this is something that happens. And the very first year, we put some example technologies on it. I think we had the information superhighway that year and wireless communications was one thing on it. And then we actually got feedback from people saying, hey, I like that curve. That really resonated. Are you going to update it next year? Jackie and her colleagues did update it the next year. And every year since, they wrote a book about it. And even though they started by just tracking emerging technologies on their hype cycle model, people in different fields started co-opting it, using the diagrams to map what was going on in their worlds. So somebody might create one for bioengineering. Then in the elections, we saw a you know, Sarah Palin hype cycle. You know, different people had picked it up. And I think it's a reflection that the hype cycle is not actually about the technologies and the things going through it. It's about the human response mm. to novelty. So it's not the technologies that go through a cycle. As you said, the actual shape of the hype cycle is a curve like a dampened roller coaster. But what people do is cycle around, particularly that peak and that trough. When you hit that disillusionment, okay, I'm done with Internet of Things. Let me look at blockchain. Okay, what's beyond blockchain? I have to say now, (laughs) having read so much about the hype cycle, I'm starting to see it in every aspect of my life every single day right now. Like, for example, we were going to make vegan pumpkin bread, my kids and I, for my cousin who's vegan. And like... The spark of innovation was like, we have a vegan cousin. We need to make her something. Yay. Okay, peak. Yes, let's make vegan pumpkin bread. Peak of expectation. Oh, shoot. We don't have almond flour. Now we have to go to the grocery store. Trough of disillusionment. But then we got the ingredients and we made, like, I mean, it's absurd how I've started yeah, to apply. This, absolutely. Like, no, it, it absolutely applies to to projects, projects in every <laughs> go through. I've heard people say it applies to their personal relationships, right? Do you think people are thinking more about this idea? Because we live in this world right now where everyone is kind of, huh, maybe I could be an entrepreneur. Maybe I should try a startup. Or maybe, you know, even if they're not starting their own business, maybe they're doing that within the organization where they work or even like in their family, maybe they're like, I'm going to set up a cleaning system. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. are we more aware as human beings to opportunities for innovation triggers these days? I think so, because the barriers to entry are much lower, both to starting a company, to launching an app, to figuring out how to charge people money and get that into your bank account. That's all been made so much easier over the last decade or so. However, I will say that the number of ideas that people have is supremely higher than the number that people actually get up and, and make happen. So that will to take that good idea and you know who hasn't had a you know an idea for an app and you're sitting around the you know dinner table and yeah, this would be a great app and you're designing it and then it doesn't go anywhere. So I think that entrepreneurial spirit to take that idea and make it real be that as your own company or even within an organization, is still much rarer than the ability to spot the opportunities. You know, I'm just thinking I have been accused 
good-naturedly accused of being someone who always has a new project. And I'm thinking about my own feelings. I love being at the peak of expectations. It is just exhilarating. Mm -hmm. It is like being at the top of a roller coaster. And you look out and you can see the whole amusement park. And you have a view that no one else has. And you just feel like you're flying. But I wonder if there's almost an addiction to being at the top, the the peak of expectations, that that's why some people are driven to be innovators or entrepreneurial in a good way. And other times people might accuse them (laughs) of constantly cycling through ideas. I think that's true. And there is a human attraction to novelty. Your babies will turn towards something that, you know, a new face that appears. It's just innate in us that we are attracted to it, but some more than others. So those who have more towards the kind of risk seeking side of things are going to be attracted to the next new thing. And to a certain extent, that's needed. So to have people who spot that, who speculate on the vision and the impact and the positive things that this can bring is a necessary part of introducing new technologies and new capabilities to the world. Typically, what we see is the early enthusiasm isn't totally misguided. There are situations and environments where All of these capabilities are relevant and work well and can make significant improvements. And as we'll see as we go through the hype cycle, the the latter part is that learning curve Mm. about what realistically this thing can do, and most importantly, when it works and when it doesn't. Yeah, and actually, the next phase of the hype cycle, which has the best name uh, it could possibly have, (laughs) the trough of disillusionment. Can you tell me about the trough? The trough is that backlash when you've had an effect where people have rushed in and, as I say, companies go in and and they adopt it without truly being aware of the implications or the environment that they're introducing it into. And the, the bigger the peak, the more people get sucked into it. And then perhaps a year or two later, people start to realize that the issues and the challenges and this thing's massively overrun, whatever it might be, uh, and then you get that backlash. So the trough of disillusionment is most often caused by some predictable factors. A really key one that drives and keeps things in the trough sometimes is the usability. Mm -hmm. So this thing works, but will people actually like it and adopt it, the individuals? So is that the moment like of proof that we need proof that this thing can make us money or that it will work to solve a problem or that it does have legs in some way? What we need is a thoughtful application of why we've adopted it. So we actually, a few years ago, we did a survey where we asked clients what technologies they've adopted. And then we had just a simple question. If you've adopted it, how much value did it give you, low, medium, high? It was quite interesting because the technologies that had been highly adopted, they'd adopted because of that feeling that they have to. Uh So everybody's doing this. We have to adopt it. We don't really know why we're doing it. We're just doing it because (laughs) everybody's doing it and and, and it's there. Um, So, of course, we have to have new collaboration technology and and, be on corporate Facebook, whatever it is. We, We have to do that. Those that were rarer technologies where they made a very conscious decision to buck the trend and say, even though this thing isn't mature yet, we think we need it and we want to apply it, those are the ones that were getting the higher value because they'd uh-huh. adopted it with a very thoughtful, deliberate mindset versus just going with the flow. I'm feeling a little bit obsessed with that 
little tiny moment on the hype cycle where I guess something either stays in the trough and dies away or it makes a turn and it starts to go back Mm -hmm. up. What needs to happen in that moment to get to the slope of enlightenment? That's a very, very key point. You're absolutely right. So it's fine. We've gone up. We've gone down. Now, what we really care about is if the second half of the hype cycle is not about the vacuous infatuation with a vision and an idea, it's about the reality of what this technology or this capability can do, that's what raises it up to the midpoint of the plateau of productivity where it's driving real value. But spotting that turn can be very challenging. All right, you guys, as you've heard, I'm kind of obsessed with the hype cycle, and I'm starting to see it in every single part of my life from the work we do here at Stable Genius Productions to blockchain, crypto, vegan pumpkin bread, me and Jen's personal relationships, even in motherhood, I have to say. And in a minute, we're going to get you some indicators, some, some key things that can get you out of the trough of disillusionment, that bottom of the curve, and onto the path of enlightenment and productivity, where we all want to be. The second half of the hype cycle, right after the break. It's Zigzag Season 3, Episode 1. And let's get back to our researcher friend, Jackie Fenn. She's an industry analyst at the research firm Gartner. And she created the concept of the hype cycle. And Jackie says a good idea can only really grow if the soil, the moment, is just right overarching issue with the hype cycle is the timing of it. So Mm. how long is this going to take? Um, Yes, the internet is an incredible world-changing force, but those who thought it was going to happen in two years, in in 2000, you know, it takes a little longer for the reality to really develop. I think Paul Sappho was one of the first to say, you know, we overestimate the impact of new technologies in the short term and underestimate their impact in the long term. Yes. Yes. So that timing issue is what it's all about. Now, things that might indicate that things are on the rise out of the trough are we see a shift from an emphasis on the core elements of the technology to more of an ecosystem. Uh. One of the technologies we were tracking many years ago was push technology as a distinct thing, the ability to push information from a remote server to an individual. Now, we would never even talk about that. It's just a part (laughs) of of everything we use in our lives, right, is is, push push to us. So looking for the environment that's going to allow a concept or an idea to really take off and exist in a as part of a broader ecosystem is something we look for. And the other key thing that we alluded to earlier is really understanding when it applies and when there may be different solutions that are just as viable. So not trying to force fit everything into it. Just because you can do something with blockchain doesn't mean you should do it with blockchain. Right. But at some point, we will, as a tech society, understand, yeah, this is where it makes sense and this is where we might want to do things a different way. But spotting that, you're absolutely right, is is very difficult. (laughs) So I'm trying. I have a message from a listener named Stephanie who has an interesting story. And I'm wondering if this is an indicator that maybe civil or blockchain or any of these ideas are actually starting to go up the slope. Can I play that to you? Love to. Hi, Manush and Jen. My name is Stephanie, and I work for a nonprofit. 
and we don't do a lot of technology and definitely not a lot of blockchain. But today I was in a meeting where I was being asked to help evaluate the risks and the benefits of engaging in a particular transaction where the compensation would mostly be in a form of cryptocurrency. And if I had been in that meeting six months or a year ago, I would have been unable to answer any of those questions in any seemingly logical way. I would have probably had to rely on my knowledge from watching Silicon Valley on HBO. But instead, I was able to ask the most relevant and important questions to help further that along. Like, what kind of token are they offering? Do we even have a crypto wallet? Are we willing to set one up? Are we banking on the fact that when we redeem these tokens, they will have a set value? Have they had their ICO yet? And I feel like you two were my secret weapon in being able to participate in that meeting and being able to be seen as the female in the room who also had a lot of the knowledge about blockchain, which is still really weird to hear coming out of my own mouth. So anyway, I wanted to thank you both very much for <laughs> having provided me that. And I had no idea that when I started listening, it would have relevance to my daily life or my work. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Jackie, when I first heard that, I was like, look at that. This woman works at a nonprofit and they're talking about blockchain. That must mean that blockchains and tokens are on the slope of enlightenment. It means that people are starting to see the value in it. But now listening back with you, I'm like, oh, no, maybe this is just like peak hype that this <laughs> we're doing what we're describing here. I think that's a wonderful little story there. And I think it does reflect a couple of relevant things. One is the trough does get people smarter about what questions to ask. Mm. I, I think that's a great part of it, that you're not just saying, yes, of course, we should do this. You're saying, okay, but you know, here's the things we need to know and we need to understand because you know, we've seen others be burned by not understanding those things. So the trough can be helpful in that way in driving those right types of questions. The other thing I think that's very relevant for those in the tech world and in the innovation world is having enough of a knowledge to be able to do the matching against the organization's needs, which is also what I heard in that little excerpt there. So although you don't want to get carried away and, and rush in and spend millions on every new technology that comes along, you do need to understand it enough to appreciate what the relevance is and what the right questions are to ask about it, but you're know, where it might apply and where not to, because you're constantly trying to match, or here's our space of issues and problems and challenges we have in our organization. Mm -hmm. Here's our space of opportunities, you know, new things we might do. And what I love is the idea that maybe because of Stephanie's basic knowledge and ability to ask the right questions very early on in any conversation about blockchain at her company, maybe they decided it wasn't for her and they skipped a whole lot of wasted time. Or maybe they were like, actually, it's not right for this project, but it might be right for this other project. Or, or just basically, as you say, having a more informed conversation earlier. Exactly. Or deciding, not now, but let's look again in a year's time. Mm -hmm. There are actually people who are referring to it as the blockchain winter right now. Mm. But I saw that blockchain was first graphed on your hype cycle model in 2016. That's a pretty quick downward dive. Would you say that new technologies are cycling through the cycle faster and faster, or is that just one example? Yeah, you know, we've 
looked at that when we were 20 years into the hype cycle. We did a retrospective on what we've learned from tracking this over time. And I think there's certain types of technology that can move much faster. So capabilities that use the internet and existing infrastructures can move quite rapidly. So they can move pretty fast from the peak and the trough, the interconnectivity and the mass experimentation that's happening around the world do allow things to hit pretty rapidly. So I have a hypothesis, which is that if we are able to inform consumers earlier in the hype cycle with new technology, then maybe we can mitigate some of the broader societal impact, which we don't like. So, for example, had Facebook not hovered at the top of the peak of expectations for quite so long because more users, regular people, understood some of the larger implications with misinformation, with having their private data shared with micro-targeted advertisers, that maybe we could have saved Facebook (laughs) from this trough of disillusionment that I feel that we are in with the social media platform. That's interesting. I think a lot of it is about the transparency. Mm. So if we understand what is being done to us and with our information, perhaps we would be more informed consumers and raise the flag earlier, or maybe not. I constantly sell my privacy for a dollar off the price of a salmon at the supermarket. Yeah, Yeah. we'll do that, uh, even though we know it's happening. Um, You know, it's unprecedented social experimentation that's going on. So until some of these things unfold, it's very hard to say, well, if we'd known this earlier, things would have gone differently. And I think the best we can do, as I say, is to think about the transparency. Mm -hmm. So yes, I know how my data is being used in the supermarket. You know, if, if it was... If it had been revealed earlier and, and you know, every company was very transparent about how they use data and how much they use data and how much they know about us, and maybe if we had access to see our own Walt Stodd known about us, we might behave rather differently with the technology. There's also something deeper though going on as well, back to your earlier points about human behavior. There is physical addictive type of reactions that mm-hmm. are going on You know, when we anticipate the message is coming in, you know, you get a hit of dopamine with the anticipation and then you get one again that somebody's liked something that you have. So there's a very you know, visceral physical reaction that's happening to a lot of this. Collectively, you know, together we can act differently as people come to a stronger realization of factors that they're unaware of. One of the challenges I see with these things that do come out of behavioral science, a much stronger awareness of our own behaviors, our own subconscious biases, are the need to be constantly reminded about it. I Hmm. remember reading Dale Carnegie's book. There's a preface where he says, I have to go and look at my own book periodically because I forget these things. You know, I wrote the book on <laughs> how to win friends and influence people, you know, best, you know, best practices and how to live a great life, but we all forget this stuff. So we tend to hear something, you know, read a book or a TED talk or something that's inspirational, say, yes, you know, that's right. That's how I want to change my life. But then four months later, we're back to driving the kids around, whatever it is, and, and these things take a back seat. So to have distinct mechanisms or technology support, Uh or some way that constantly reminds us of how we'd like to live our lives and behave, that I think is a huge help in keeping the things we'd like to do and how we'd like to behave front of mind, because that's an ongoing problem for everybody, I think, even those who are aware. 
I mean, is it safe to say that there are ways to predict when a big idea will work or won't? I mean, humans, as much as we feel like special snowflakes every day, are we really just very predictable? (laughs) As people, we're predictable. So there's the reaction to the things that are happening is what's predictable. There are elements that you can look at and say, is this likely to succeed based on the predictable things we can see that could go wrong? So yeah, how many people need to adopt it? Does it need a huge infrastructure? Are there huge regulatory barriers that might stymie it along the way? Or is it something that as an individual, I can just say, yes, I'll do this, I'll download it and I'll adopt it, which clearly has a very low barrier to entry versus having a new cryptocurrency that's legally recognized by multiple nations or something that has much higher barriers to make it work. We've talked a lot about technology and sort of big, big innovation. But I wonder if a listener is thinking, you know, what's the best way that I can apply the hype cycle model to an idea that I have or maybe my personal life? What would you advise? I think it's an awareness. So not to be caught up in the initial hype without your eyes open, and then not necessarily to react to the trough. So if you are in the blockchain world and you believe that this has long-term value, to stick with it. So the idea is really to, by being aware of the hype cycle, to dampen the front part of the, the curve. So dampen the peak and stay realistic and say, yes, this is very promising, but what's the time frame for it? And where is it likely to impact me or my life? Where does it add value? to me, and then ask those same questions again in the trough when everybody's abandoning the app because of whatever reason. For me, do I agree with those reasons? Or for me, do I want to stick with it? And I have some value there. So it's that awareness of it to help dampen the ups and downs, I think, is the biggest value there. I think what you just described is actually why a lot of founders and startup people are into meditation or Zen ideas or Buddhism, this idea that Don't get the highs too high and don't let the lows go too low. I think that's what President Obama used to say. He'd say, cut off the top 10 percent of accolades, cut off the bottom 10 percent of complaints and like the realities in the middle. Yeah. Very nice observation. It is a roller coaster. Jackie Fenn, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. After we did the interview, Jackie went on to tell me that she just recently published her first novel, a techno thriller called Gone Viral. She's written it under the pen name J.A. Knight, and it's about a programmer whose menacing algorithm spirals out of control. I can't wait to read it. We will put a link in the episode notes, too. Gotta love a tech analyst turned thriller novelist. I hope you think of this podcast as your little reminder to, as Jackie said, think about how you want to live your life. Put it on as you drive the carpool and think big experimental ideas with us that might make your world, the world, just a little bit better. Okay, one more reminder. We are changing it up a little this season. Episodes are coming out every other Thursday, so we'll be back in two weeks. It's a short season, just six episodes. And we are going to be exploring the hype cycle in depth, analyzing ideas that you've sent us and going to a place where hype might be the only thing that can save it. A town in upstate New York, up at the Canadian border. This town has been devastated by economic depression and drug addiction. And our producer, Thalia Beatty, just came back from spending a week up there. 
And what she found out was kind of nuts. Jen and Manoush, do, do I have a doozy for you? Oh, my God. I did not expect what I found inside. My mind is blown. I did not believe that they were actually building something here. Or I just didn't think it was this. I just, I... We'll be telling you the story of Messina, New York this season, but we also need you to tell us what's going on in your life and where are you on the hype cycle? Have you finally reached the plateau of productivity with your new job? What got you up the path of enlightenment? What about your marriage? Maybe you're at the peak of expectation or the trough of despair. Tell us. Record a voice memo. Email it to us at zigzag at stableg.com. And please tell someone today about the podcast. Support the show by helping your friend or your family member or whoever download it if they don't know how. There's more people than you think out there who don't know about podcasts. Seriously. And we need your help reaching them. And thank you. This episode was produced by me, Thalia Beatty, and Jen Poyant. Matt Boynton and David Herman were our audio engineers and composers. Many thanks to our other audio engineer, Dan DeZula, for his help. ZigZag comes from Stable Genius Productions in partnership with Civil. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and thank you so much for listening. Yes, it's on uh, on Amazon, again, gone viral and under a pen name of J.A. Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T, and it's available in paperback or on ebook format. Excellent. Why the pen name? It seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, not so sure now. <laughs> <laughs>